Welcome to Inspired by Kurosawa, where we're watching one of the influential works of legendary director Akira Kurosawa and then the films that it inspired. Today, we're discussing the 1954 classic Seven Samurai. I'm your host, and I've been trying to grow a top knot for this episode, but my barber just keeps calling it a man bun. My co-host is Guy, who now insists he's not a podcaster, he's a sensei. <laughs> yep. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And uh, today we have repeat guest and friend of the podcast, Andrew Heaton, host of Alienating the Audience. Hello, Mr. Heaton. Hello. Glad to be back. Yeah. So what's your familiarity with Kurosawa? I saw this. This is the only Kurosawa film I've seen. Mm. However, I've had two prior run-ins with it. Uh, I, I saw this when I was about 10. I, I remember being at some summer camp where this was, it was like one of those day camps you go to. When you're like 10 years old, you're not actually out in the woods or anything. Your parents just drop you off at a library or something. <laughs> it was one of those. And I remember watching this film. And that was well before I started drinking. So I remember a surprising amount of it, uh, uh, despite, despite my advanced age. Uh, and then the other bit, the only Kurosawa references that, that I've heard since then are occasionally somebody will accuse George Lucas of ripping off Kurosawa. And uh, <laughs> in, the, in the banner song, uh, One Week by Bare Naked Ladies, which was my favorite band in high school, uh, they say, like Kurosawa, I make bad films. K, I don't make films. But if I did, they'd have a samurai. And I was like, all right, apparently Bare Naked Ladies is on to <laughs> Kurosawa. And uh, that that would be up until I rewatched the film. That would be the extent of my familiarity with it. Okay. Well, interesting thing there. We will be watching the film that George Lucas <laughs> ripped off and uh, as part of all this. So it's called Hidden Fortress. And I still haven't completed it just because I would get distracted when I start watching it. But what is incredible is I had heard that it influenced Star Wars. And then I started watching it. It didn't influence it. <laughs> Lucas copy-pasted <laughs> the names. Over. I mean, literally, you have R2-D2 and C-3PO in the beginning. You have these two guys who are doing the exact same banter, uh, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. And the hidden fortress is, you know, the Death Star because they're trying to find this fortress up in the mountains and, and attack it. And, and so it's going to be really interesting to watch that. And then we're going to watch Star Wars from that perspective and see how it influences our or mm -hmm. thinking about Star Wars. So he was very influenced. Now, I will give Lucas this. He paid it back. You know, he and Coppola went and funded one of the last films that Kurosawa did that he couldn't get funding for. Really? Yeah. So so he wasn't, like, shy about the influence of Kurosawa on him or anything. Yeah, well, so. and I, I also, I think that there's a big difference between stealing something versus, like, being upfront of like, yes, I was deeply affected by this. I am, I am borrowing elements from this. Like if you're, if you're honest and direct about it, I don't really consider it plagiarism. And I don't know to what extent, uh, uh, he, he did that, but if he was like, yes, like I am a huge Kurosawa film, this is to a great extent, me translating Kurosawa into science fiction that I would have no problem with it. Right. Right. I did know that I think it's in, no, it's not hidden fortress. The guy that plays, uh, Kambe, uh, I think the wise leader that we'll talk about here in a minute was the original pick that he wanted for Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Like he just no, wanted it was, a straight uh, up date. I think it was, well, I'm not, I think it was Toshiro mm. Mifune who plays the really kind of wacky guy and who was oh, the drunk. Yeah. You of the drunk. Oh, yeah, well, okay. That, that makes sense. Cause maybe the, okay. The, the timeline makes more sense. Cause, cause seven samurai came out in what? 54. Yeah. So the other guy would have been, probably been pretty old. The thing is Mifune yeah. and he, their careers were completely intertwined. It was, Sort of like Scorsese and De Niro, but even more so. 
Mufune's career was really created because Kurosawa saw him and insisted that the production company hire him so he could use him in his films. And what he liked about him that you see here in, in the first film that we did of Kurosawa's was Rashomon, which he was also in, is that he has this incredible ability to just turn on this mercurial personality. And you see it very much in here, right? Where he'll start laughing and running around. He just has this energy. And as soon as Kurosawa saw that, he's like, I want it. And they did something like 15 films together, but they also ended up kind of hating each other. <laughs> they never uh, they never recovered mm. their relationship before Mifune died. And, and the last straw was later on, Kurosawa did a film called Redbeard, and Mifune was playing the main character, and he had this big beard, you know, that was red. And like with this film, as we'll talk about, it took forever. It took over a year, like a year and a half or something, to, to film Redbeard. And he wouldn't let Mifune shave the beard. And Mifune was a bad business person. He was running an acting school, and he needed all the money he could get. And if he couldn't shave his beard, he couldn't get other roles during that year and a half, you know, because they didn't want him with a beard. <laughs> so, so he hated Kurosawa after that. And he said Kurosawa never complimented him and, and all this. So it was an interesting relationship. It's kind of too bad. I mean, after Mifune died... Kurosawa did a very nice letter for his funeral, but they never, to my knowledge, they never really reconciled. So, we're, you know, typically when we do films, we kind of do this pretty detailed walkthrough, but this is a three and a half hour film. So we're not going to bother with that. People should just go see it. But we should, for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, at least go through the high points here. So, you know, we start out and we have this village of farmers, and this is in the like 1570s, and it was during a period, there was about a 200-year period, 150-year period, where Japan was just a mess, right? Like, they call, um, I forget the exact name, they called it war or something, but it, everybody was fighting with everybody, there was no real government, there was no, you know, every, it was all everybody for themselves, right? So, and this film very much represents that. So you have these farmers, and what we find out is that Every season, basically, these bandits come and take all the stuff that the farmers harvested. And in the beginning, in fact, it's kind of funny because when we, what we see in the opening of the film, right, is the the group of bandits on horses coming to this village and saying, "Oh, let's go, you know, let's go grab everything." And then then the leader stops them and says, "You know what? We just grabbed everything from them a few months ago, so they're not going to have anything." more yet so we should come back <laughs> when when the next you know barley season is and then we can take everything so they're actually having to moderate how often they raid <laughs> the farmers to make sure yeah, there's I, something to steal i i also wondered about because based on how subsistence the farmers are i doubt that they're going to the barley like the national barley bank of japan <laughs> and giving the barley there and then bringing back gold coins like i'm guessing they literally just have barley and whatever they're making so are the are the mm. bandits just going to load up their their pickup trucks full of barley and like take it to a barley processing plant? Like I don't really know what they can what they what they'll be able to do with all the barley. Well, they probably can sell it, but also as we see in this film, just having any amount of food is huge, right? I mean, having a ball of rice is a very valuable thing in this film, and and we see that over and over again. Yeah, you kind of get the impression that everybody's just kind of constantly hungry, skipping a meal a day. Uh, yeah, f food food for everybody is a, a precious commodity. 
The weird thing to me is that the mm. other thing we find, though, is that the farmers are the lowest of the low. You know, nobody wants to be associated with them. Uh, it's a shame to be born a farmer. But you would think if you're the people who are making the food at a time when everyone's starving, that you would have some status. <laughs> I'd think so. I know even like at my high school, we had a mixture of the city folk and the and the country folk, and uh, there was a lot of uh, ridiculing the farmers. I don't think I did it much because I had actually done a little bit myself, and I knew it was uh, some arduous work. But uh, but yeah, there's uh, certainly a lot of people who will tend to look down on the good old. Yeah, farmers. I, I don't think that status is really uh, associated so much with. Necessi- like providing necessities like it, it seems to be orthogonal to that uh, to where like the janitor at NASA is very necessary for NASA to work if you're on the janitorial staff at NASA like the whole place would break down were it not for janitors but if you go on a dating app and you say I'm a janitor at NASA <laughs> I, I suspect that it th- it's not really going to make a big difference you're going to be seen as very low in the totem pole good point mm. I spent a year on a farm as a teenager which was definitely very Educational. One of the things I that really surprised me, aside from having to get up at four a.m. every morning and you know go feed the goats and and all this stuff, is it turns out that hay is a very uh, flammatory thing when it's raining. So what would happen is we'd have all these hays in these hay barns, and then if there was a storm, we'd have to go out in the storm and put on these heavy gloves and pull apart all the bales of hay because what happens is the water activates bacteria in the hay Ah. and it that then heats up to the point that it will catch on fire and it's so hot that you have to have these heavy leather gloves because it you otherwise you wouldn't be able to touch the hay while you're pulling it apart so i I never would have yeah i had no Mm -hmm. idea until i was stuck out in the storm you know at midnight (laughs) pulling apart bales of hay and that's one of the things about farmers and you know again we see it in this movie is like Everything runs your life. You know, the environment runs your life. Like, you're just stuck with whatever happens, and you have to react to it. You know, locusts or, you know, whatever comes along, you're going to be subject to it. Yeah, I'm glad I became a podcaster. It seems easier. Very rarely (laughs) do I have to wake up at midnight to pull apart my podcasting equipment lest it explode. (laughs) (laughs) So we have these farmers and, you know, they overheard the fact that the bandits are planning to come back when the season is ready. And so they have a big village meeting to figure out what to do. And there's a lot of dissension in the ranks. And, you know, one of the guys who's key in all this, uh, his name is Manzo, and he's a very, very fearful person. I don't know if it was makeup or his face, but he is this incredibly pathetic guy. And he was able to communicate that so Oh, is Amazingly he? Ma- well. Ma- Manzo's my favorite in the entire film. If it's, if it's a guy I'm thinking, Ma- Manzo kind of has that like sad clown mouth. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just sort of this kind of constant sad grimace. <laughs> that guy's amazing. Like he, like, he, it, it's as if he had spent decades just kind of grimacing in a sad way. Uh, and he has this kind of, yeah, kind of like, he reminds me of like a 1950s hobo character. Uh, with with just that kind of like I, I don't know I, I I really enjoyed him actually can I, can I pause you because one yeah. of the things I wondered about throughout this entire film why are all the farmers shaving their head is that a clack because the the samurai don't one of the the rookie samurai he shaved his head the other samurai have not shaved their head so is it a class distinction is it something religious it seems like a very odd thing to do for people that work in the sun all day to remove sun cover from their heads. I didn't notice so much the farmers doing it, but the point is really good because a little bit later, the 
the person who's going to be the lead samurai, the first thing we see of him before we know who he is or what he's doing is he's shaving off all the hair mm-hmm. on his head. And what he's doing in that case is he's going to pretend to be a monk to take care of a problem, which we'll probably get to in a bit. And the and I actually asked, <laughs> I asked ChatGPT to explain to me the significance of the hair thing here. So the top knot that samurais had was because of the helmets that they would wear, and that made the hair work with the helmets. And then that top knot became a status symbol. And okay. so the fact that we see who's going to be the lead samurai here, the first thing we see him do is willingly shave his hair. He is reducing his status in order to solve a problem, which is right. not something, as we'll see, not something a lot of samurai would do, right? They're not going to reduce their status to help out people <laughs> in right. any way. So so I don't have an answer for the farmer shaving their head thing, except that definitely that's not something your typical samurai would do. And and there is some social stuff around the hair, yeah. Right. So yeah, so these these villagers have a big meeting and, they, and Manzo, this guy, and you know, he's always the biggest coward and he's like, "You know what? I have an idea. When they come, we will just grovel <laughs> and we'll say, please, please leave us enough food that we won't starve. <laughs> and that's his plan for how to deal with this. <laughs> but uh, the rest of the village decides we've had enough of this, you know, we need some help. But they don't know what to do. So they go to the village elder. This is another guy with such a distinctive look and face. And again, I don't know how much of this was makeup. I don't know how much it was acting. I don't know how much it was just them casting people who looked like this, but the it's sort of like you were describing, you know, the, the village elder looks like he's got all this plastic surgery or something to get his face to, to look this really weird way. And he's an interesting guy and he tells them it's time to fight back and they need to go get some samurai that he's seen this before. And, you know, bandits would go through and clear out a bunch of villages. And the only village that survived was the one that hired samurai to protect them. So they send a, a team of people to the, you know, to the local town to try and find some samurai. And one of the things that's, you know, it's probably frustrating for a modern viewer, but it's also interesting about this film being three and a half hours is it just takes its time, right? There is nothing rushed in any part of this. So they spend a long time trying to find samurai. And, you know, most of the samurai are kind of jerks who are like, you know, I'm not going to help farmers. What do you think I am? (laughs) Yeah, and they don't have anything to offer beyond their rice and millet and barley. Uh, They don't have coins or anything cool like that. Yeah. The the, the thing that that surprised me about the length of the film is that it works. Like, I I didn't think that that was going to – because I thought about like an hour in, I'm like – What's happened? We're an hour into the film. <laughs> what has happened in the film so far? And I did a middle check and I'm like, we're, we're an hour, an hour into the film. The bandits threatened to raid them. They talked to the old guy. They went to the town and they've tried to find some samurai. Like you, like literally you could have done that whole thing in about seven minutes if you wanted <laughs> right. to have that exact same information communicated, <laughs> right. but it doesn't somehow. And I don't fully understand this. You're just kind of watching it and you're like, no, I'm on board. Like you just, it's like almost like you're, you're adjusting your mental metabolism to slow down a little bit. And you're like, no, 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 we're just going to, we're going to let this breathe. And uh, in a way that I, I don't know if it's because it's in black and white that my brain just goes, ah, old timey, it's fine. Different. Uh, or, or if there's something brilliant to, uh, to Kurosawa, I don't know. Cause today, if I watched a film that was like normal, you know, Paramount theaters came out 2023 and, it, and an hour in, they'd done five things. I, I would go crazy. I'd have to take Adderall to sit through that. <laughs> well, I, and <laughs> 
I would say it's one of those films where, it, even though it's at length, it really, really benefits from occasionally rewatching it because I've seen it now uh, with a couple times for the podcast, like about four times. And each time you see it, you, you get so much more depth because the first time you watch it, this is all this stuff and it, it's kind of overwhelming. And you kind of, okay, there's samurai and there's this and that. It took me a couple times to really start to get the different personalities of the samurai, how different they are, the different roles that they play, how much character there is in this. So, one of the things you talk about, you know, that whole first hour, well, when they go to the town, they have failure after failure trying to recruit samurai. Meanwhile, they're running out of the food they've got. And one of the things they repeated, we, that repeatedly gets mentioned is in order to keep rice so they can give rice to some samurai who come help them, because again, that's just how valuable rice is, they're eating millet, right? They're essentially starving themselves so that they can have a few handfuls of rice so when they find a samurai, they can give the rice to the samurai. I mean, that's just, and, and you, so it's just seeing just how desperate they are, you know? Okay, can, can I ask there too? Based on the the context, I understand that millet is a bad thing, right? It's like the way they the way they say it, it's like saying corn husks. But millet, to my ears, sounds like a thing white people eat from uh from from Whole Foods, like that you would buy a jar of like uh, Portland <laughs> millet or something like that, right? Okay. So like, I I assume millet just means like the dross from wheat or yeah. something like that. Yeah, it's clearly nobody would choose to eat it, although and that's you right. know. That's a whole other story about why rich white people want to eat things that no one would choose to eat in the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so but with, with that hour, we just get to see how desperate they are and their supplies keep running down. And then as we see, the rice gets stolen. So they literally have nothing to give a samurai. And finally, as we mentioned, they meet the guy who's going to become the leader of them. And he he's the one who um, some thief has taken a baby and gone into a, you know, a hut and says he's going to kill the baby if anybody approaches so they ask this this guy to do something, and he cuts off his hair and actually he's a monk and goes in and then <laughs> dispatches of the thief. And it's uh, it's also interesting because this guy is clearly very moral and everything, but he has no problem whatsoever about just killing the thief as soon as he gets a chance to to do so. Yeah. And there's two points in here, at least, uh, we see. And one of them is so he goes into this hut pretending to be the monk, and he he has some rice and he gives it to the thief and then we don't see what happens, but he, as soon as he gets a chance, you know, he clearly slices the thief. The thief runs out of the hut and then we go into a slow motion, but it's kind of a subtle slow motion. You can almost not notice that it was slow motion. And then one of the things that, you know, I found in reading about this is this is the first film that used slow motion for a, an emotional appeal. And they don't, there's like only two yeah. points. There's two people who get sliced at different times and you sort of see them die in slow motion. But again, it's this very subtle slow motion. Like I didn't even realize there was slow motion in the film until I read about that and then watched it. Oh, no, I I, I, know, I was watching it. Mm. I, I'm i glad to know that this is the first time that this has been used because I don't, I don't think it pulled it off. Like, because it was this mm. sort of like half speed weird thing and it was kind of an odd, mm-hmm. a kind of odd moment to do that as well because I don't know who the thief is. I've heard his mm. voice a couple of times. Like I'm not, a, like, I have no emotional attachment to the thief. I have emotional attachment to the guy that debased himself and pretended to be a monk and cut his hair off. I have some emotional attachment to the the villagers who are now, you know, thankful they got their kid back. But I, I thought it was kind of a weird moment to try to add emotion through slow motion. So what do you think, guys? Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't notice the slow motion in The Thief's Death. I noticed it a little later when there's a guy in a sword fight who uh, gets taken down. But I didn't really notice it, but I think... Uh, 
Maybe it was to emphasize the su- sort of surprise aspect, because at first the thief just comes out of the tent seeming kind of dazed, and it's not clear what's going on. And then, then you see, oh, he's dying, <laughs> and he dies. So the slow motion might might just be to emphasize that point that, uh, yeah, he wasn't just uh, dumbstruck. He was dying. Yeah, related to I that, one of the sure, things though. that's interesting about this, especially compared to some other later Kurosawa films, even though there's lots of fighting and lots of dying, there's no blood in this film, really. I mean, you see some blood on swords occasionally, but there's no, like, spurting blood or this or that, where, you know, as I recall uh, in Ron, for example, there's, um, you know, like, buckets of blood. <laughs> it's just, you know, so. And I think related to what you're saying, Guy, I think some of the point of some of these techniques might be, since we're not showing blood, we want to show, you know, that this person has been has been really injured. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, the the villagers are excited because here's a guy who clearly is ethical and moral and was willing to sacrifice for, you know, for nothing to save somebody. And so they propose to him to help them out. And he's like, ah, there's no way to make this work. <laughs> and then he sort of gets intrigued and he, he, it's in a, one of the things I like uh, a lot about the film is this is not an action film where you just, you know, go in with swords or guns blazing. Like, it's very strategic. And so they describe to him the layout of their village. And he's putting this together in his mind. And he's like, well, if we were going to protect your village, you know, we're going to need to flood your fields. We're going to need two people here. We're going to need a person here. We're going to need a person there. And so he realizes we need seven samurai. (laughs) He works out the formula. And they were only authorized to hire four samurai. So they had to kind of make a choice on the fly. But that even seems impossible because they've gone all this time, they're out of their food, you know, and they've gotten one guy, right? And there's a funny line later on when they come back with the seven samurai, the old guy says, well, that's good. I uh, I was thinking of asking for 10, but I figured you'd bring back 15. <laughs> yeah, he's very practical. So, of course, they slowly accumulate the samurai. One of them is a friend of this guy's. Actually, I should uh, get his name so we can refer to him kind of... Um, his, uh, Kambe or Shimada is, you know, Kambe Shimada is, his, is the character's name. And, um, he has a friend, so his friend joins and, uh, they do this funny test whenever, you know, a samurai is good. Cause it's clear there's a lot of crappy samurai out there. You know, they're both jerks and, and not necessarily good. It seems like anybody can kind of call themselves a samurai. So they do this test where they have the sort of young guy who's very eager and wants to be a, you know, a disciple of the, of the main guy. And so he'll stand uh, next to the door with a big stick, and they'll invite the samurai in. And the, if the samurai gets beaten up by the stick, they know that he's not for them. Right? <laughs> That's pretty funny, the, the, the sequence here. Because, you know, one guy comes in and just, he doesn't get fooled, and he takes him out, but then he's offended, and he's, you know, one of these haughty samurai, he's not going to do it. The next guy, I think he's one who joins them, right, is even better, right? He's walking up to the hut, and we can't tell exactly what he sees, but presumably he sees a shadow or something, and he refuses to walk into the hut. He realizes he's about to be attacked. <laughs> so he laughs too, doesn't he? Yeah, he's he like, thinks it's good, very good funny, one, <laughs> And then with Mifune, when he comes along, he's you know this drunk wannabe. He comes in as a drunk, and he gets smacked on the head, <laughs> and then spends about twenty minutes uh, chasing <laughs> them around, and you know being a drunk, and there's no way that they're going to accept him. And we'll see, they eventually do accept him, and he actually has a very valuable role to play in all this. 
Uh, but they only accept him because he refuses to leave him alone. <laughs> he comes along until they until they sort of understand his his role in things. So you know they eventually uh, get their seven samurai who, who don't manage to get hit by the stick. <laughs> well, they return to the village and they find that it seems to be empty. yeah. So yeah, they all head off to the village and the vi- nobody comes out and and greets them. They're you know they're sort of sacrificing themselves to do this and. The villagers are scared. They don't quite know what the deal is. And I think, you know, we'll see. There's kind of a lot of uh, background story here about the villagers and samurai and such. But the funny thing is that eventually, and this is one of the ways that they find out that Mifune is worthwhile, is he sounds the alarm. There's a certain way they, they like pound on a piece of wood or something to sound the alarm that the bandits are coming. And then everybody's freaked out and they all run into the center of town and they're all wanting the samurai to help them. And so Mifune, it turns out, we'll see, and this is kind of the real value he provides. He understands the farmers. And as we learn, eventually he actually was born as a farmer, which he's sort of ashamed of. And so he's kind of playing a samurai, but it turns out to be really helpful to everyone because the samurai themselves are such a different class than the farmers that they don't really understand them. And Mufune is the only one who understands both the farmers and the samurai and, you know, has complex feelings about both of them, but he knows how to manipulate the farmers. So, you know, he knew how to get them out here. He also tells the samurai, look, these guys are going to claim they don't have any food or anything. You know what? They have all sorts of food and they have sake and they have this and it's buried here and there. It's under the floors. It's under the barn, you know, and, it seems like he's being ridiculous. We see later in the film, he's basically right, because once the farmers respect the samurai and, and the samurai have taken some sacrifices for them, all of a sudden they start showing up with food and sake and all this, just like he said. And I, I think, we so Guy and I are going to watch a whole bunch of films that were inspired by this. And my take on the ones that I've seen already is typically, especially the American ones, inspired by this, you know, it's all about getting the group together and then beating the bad guys. And in this film, the people that they are protecting, well, in the American films, it's always these very innocent people, right? In this film, these are not innocent people. They have a lot of skeletons in their closets. And he's, you know, Mifune is someone who understands that, right? So one of the things he figures out is he figures out that they have all this armor and weaponry which the only way they could have gotten it is if they robbed and possibly killed samurai who had been defeated and who were like retreating from battle. So, you know, these are, and and we actually, there was a reference really early on in the film uh, when the village was debating where they bring this up, you know, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's one of those things where you might need to watch it multiple times to, to see what's happening. But they talk about the fact that, that, you know, they've done this to samurai before, um, so wait, so, so so the implication is that they were picking samurai off because that is, that is a, a poignant moment of the film where the, the wild card character, I'm very bad at names, the wild card character has given his impassioned speech about how awful and wily the farmers are, but that the reason that they're so awful and horrible is because you samurai are even worse <laughs> and that you're coming by and taking their food. Uh, and you, uh, I, for, from the get-go, I'm just siding with the peasants on this. I had sort of assumed that samurai had... had tried to to muscle food out of them and they'd successfully repelled them but the implication is that like a couple of defeated samurai were walking down the road and they jumped them and stole their yeah. armor or killed them yeah. or something like that 
It's never fully explained, but mm. the, but you know, the fact that they have, I mean, they have a lot of armor and <laughs> they have a lot of weapons. So there seems to have been some kind of systematic thing here. So it's also, once you understand that, it's kind of audacious that they then go to samurai to protect them, right? So, of course, now that samurai are here, we go through now, what would these days be very stereotypical, right? Because you would have your, your montages of training the village and, and all this and getting them prepared. Although, Again, they take a long time at all this. And one of the things I like a lot is we watch as the lead guy and a couple of his people walk all the way around this thing. You know, they go to every corner of the village and determine what they're going to need to do tactically to protect that part of the village. One of the things that they realize that causes some problems is they realize they're going to have to sacrifice several village houses because there's just no way to defend them. Yeah, there's a little river, and they're on the other side of it, so and they're going to have to take out the bridge. Right, so they're going to flood the barley on one side and take the bridge out. You know, they want to—this is very—what's um, oh, the famous um, ancient uh, tactician who uh, wrote the book? that L- Lao Tzu? No, no, no. no uh, uh, the Art of War, you're talking Art, about that? Art of War, the- yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, Art of War stuff in here, right, where where it's like where you need to control where the fight is going to happen and how it's going to happen and all this. And so, uh, but there's a really fascinating thing that comes out of them deciding that they're going to have to let some of the houses go, which is the people who live in those houses say, well, screw, screw everyone else. If you're not going to protect our houses, we're not going to protect anyone else. And this is where the leader, who's this very, you know, seems very wise, respectable guy the main um, samurai, he suddenly shows a different side of himself, right? Because as these people are saying, well, we're not going to help anyone else if you're going to let our houses go. He pulls out his sword and he chases after them and he makes it clear, you are going to be on board or you're not making it out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, that kind of, you know, sets the tone. Everyone's in this fight. Meanwhile, you know, we have this young samurai who who they didn't want to bring along because he's too inexperienced, but, you know, he sort of weaseled his way in. And he, well, one of our stories here, right, is that Manzo, the guy we talked about who just wanted to give in to the bandits, he has a beautiful daughter. And as soon as the samurai are showing up, he makes his daughter cut off her hair and pretend to be a boy. And the young samurai and his daughter, Shino, uh, end up encountering each other. And (laughs) obviously, uh, the samurai figures out at some point that she's not a boy and they start a relationship. And, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously his first relationship and it's very interesting. Part of what got me is as things get more stressful and the attacks are about to happen and they don't know if they're going to live or not, she's trying to goad him into having sex with her. You know, she, he's sort of shy and, and you know, has boundaries and everything. And she's saying, act like a samurai. I mean, she's really trying to get him to do this. And he won't do it. So that was kind of funny. Yeah, she's just basically throwing herself down in the, rolling in the hay, as it were. Which you, know, you don't want to do if it rains. I don't know if you know like this guy, samurai. but when it rains, the bacteria in the hay makes it get too hot to have sex in. <laughs> Although, I took eventually on the against. eve of battle, they do, uh, you know, manage to do the deed. And of course, you know, her father realizes this has happened and that's a big, um, you know, a big problem because <laughs> right? he, now he wants to disown her and all this. So. 
Okay, can, can you can you yeah can, yeah, can, can I, we pick that apart because it you you get the impression that there's this really really distinctive uh, class culture uh, in in medieval Japan where it's almost not like classes of Japanese but almost like two countries on top of each other like the samurai when they find out that the the peasants had picked off other samurai one of them's like well now I want to kill them like he like he's not like he he views it almost as an attack on his class that they would they would ever mm-hmm. do that. And then there, apparently it's, it's not that these guys are from out of town and they're going to bang and leave. It's not that it's like a, a chastity issue of, uh, you know, we, we, you can only have sex with my daughter if you, if you make things right and marry her and stick around. It's, it's, this is forbidden in terms of the class structure and right. the farmer's angry that his daughter's tapping the guy that outranks them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I actually, after watching the movie, I went and looked up some, you know, critical analysis of it. And, uh, you know, mainly that was what I was curious about is that you get to the end of the movie and if this was an American movie, you'd have something like, uh, oh, the, the young samurai realizes that this town yeah. is where his heart is. So he's going to marry the girl and, you know, start a family yeah. here. Uh, well, no, nope, that's not the way it pans Tell me if you think out. I'm wrong. I think he was willing to do that. He thought that's where it was going. And she was like, nope, sorry, I'm a villager. And she goes out to, you know, pick wheat or whatever. And she's she's not interested, which was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it, at least as far as I could establish, that it's all because of the right. the class differences, right. as Andrew said. You, you all would need to speak Japanese to answer this question, but perhaps you've, you've run into it in your, your readings of it. Uh, if we were setting this in Britain, we'd presumably have the... Villagers talk like this, governor. You know, and it's very clear that they're on the. Whereas the the samurai are coming in, and they all sound like out of Guinness. I have no idea how to pick apart Japanese accents. Right. I'm assuming that there's like a very intense linguistic difference between the samurai and the villagers. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. know. Couldn't be, but I, I didn't also don't know. It. But related to what you're talking about, I mean, this is one of the reasons that Shakespeare plays tend to be modernized, right? Because if you're watching a sort of classic version of a Shakespeare play and people are wearing different kind of capes and everything, you don't understand this guy's a general and this guy's a private, right? So one right. of the reasons that they'll modernize it is so they can put them in a context that we understand the relationship these characters have to each other. Yeah. So yeah, there there may there absolutely I'm sure there are things we're losing in translation because we just don't don't recognize that. And like you say, I mean, there are British films where, of course, if you have the wrong kind of accent, you are clearly trash, right? <laughs> and we would have no idea because we're like, oh, that's a <laughs> British person. I, uh, you know, British accent. I want to bang that person. <laughs> <laughs> You're like my fair lady. Yeah. You know, the, right. Henry yeah, Higgins this is a very good example the, of that, that linguistic class structure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so... You know, so we so we have this whole kind of middle of the film where, you know, they're figuring out how they're going to defend it. Uh, they decide they have to wait for the, the barley to be harvested so they can then flood the fields. And, you know, they just have to hope they don't get attacked before that. And, you know, we, we go through these conflicts about them not letting some of the houses be sacrificed. And all this leads up to the last third of the film, which is really kind of the actual battle, right? Uh, and... It's really, again, a very tactical. I mean, they do things. Like, so these guys are on horses, and there's 40 of them. And they know there's seven of them, uh, the samurai. And, and you know, they are trying to get the help of 
the villagers, and they are training the villagers. One of the things I, I thought was amusing is uh, one of them creates a, a flag for the seven samurai. It has a circle for six of them and then a little triangle for one. So we have that representation that's flying on top of a of one of the houses. And then they create, or actually I think the lead guy creates this document which has a circle for every single one of the bandits because there's they know that there's like 40 bandits. And, so, and then as they're killing bandits here and there, they're crossing out the, one of the circles. I thought that was pretty pretty brutal and pretty cool. Uh, we do have an early thing in here, which is another kind of you know plot line. So they, some scouts come along from the bandits, and they figure out where the bandit village is from this, and they're going to go and you know do a pre- preventative attack on them, or and they end up burning down a building so they can kill the people as they come out. And we have this sort of unexpected thing because there's a guy, one of the villagers who's hosting the samurai in his house, the drunk guy, Mufune, finds this woman's robe and, you know, taunts him about how, oh, it must be easier when you have a woman here to, you know, have sex with or whatever. And well, yeah, because he's, he's they're, they're staying in that guy's house and he's staying yeah. out in the barn and uh, the, the, the drunk is walking through the barn and he's like, oh, he's kind of like, gently razzing the guy and is like, oh, no no, no wonder you don't mind staying at the barn when you got a wife to keep you warm. And he holds up the, uh, holds up the kimono and then the guy flips out. Right, which he's also sniffing very inappropriately mm-hmm. as he does. Uh, yeah, and so we don't understand what this is about. And the guy insists there is no woman and he kind of breaks down. Well, then later on when they invade the bandit village and burn down this building, there's this beautiful woman inside and she sort of starts to walk out, and then she lets her she commits suicide eventually. She lets herself burn to death, and we learn at that point that that was this guy's wife. That the bandits had taken his wife, and that was his shame. And she had lived, and clearly they were doing whatever they were doing with her until she decided to commit suicide. So they could have been together if she had just chosen to left. The two of them could have been together. The, uh, d- doesn't she just walk back into the burning yeah. house? It's not like she's in there and refi- like she literally mm. walks into an inferno because the shame of having been captured and raped and turned into a concubine is so great. Yep. Yep. So that's a, you know, which is, yeah. which, is which is also kind of a, a more old timey thing than now. Very fortunately uh, today, while rape would be horrible and being a sex slave would be horrible, I don't think that we would consider it something that you personally should be ashamed about for having happened to you. We would view it very much as being culpable to the other person. Uh, but there, there is a very right. long period of history where if, if, if a woman is raped, it's considered like she has been dishonored. She is, right. she is shamed. Even, even though she had no culpability in it, she has shame and shamed her right. family and shamed herself and the wife would rather die than go back to the village knowing what's happened. Yeah, and we don't know like how her husband would have responded. Even though he clearly loved her, maybe he would have rejected her because of this, right? And we we don't get a chance to see what what would have happened. Yeah, in in ancient Rome, the uh, the, yeah, the pater familius uh, was the, the the head of every family was the pater familius, and you had a uh, power of life and death over your wife and children. There there was no court of law that would convict you for strangling your wife. You could do that. And uh, you, you find um, uh, men come back from, you know, the Carthaginian wars and are pretty sure their wife slept <laughs> with somebody else. And so they'll just kill them. They'll just strangle them and stuff. And it's, uh, man, history's brutal. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
You've still got some subcultures today where the honor killings are still a going yeah. concern. Yeah, the so that's not uh, not really the right way to place blame in my book. Well, but, I'm uh, I'm against rape, happens. but I'm for honor killings. So I guess I'm more <laughs> of a moderate than guy. <laughs> right. So the entire last third of this film after this is you know the bandits attacking the village and. They do some of the clever things that the samurai do is that, you know, and they are working with all the villagers, they'll let like one horseman get through, you know, the, all the horsemen will, will rush. They'll let one horseman get through, block off all the others with spears. So the one horseman who got through is now screwed because they're surrounded by swords and spears, right? And it takes the bandits a while to figure out to stop doing that, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they uh, they fall prey to that multiple times, and uh, it's it's always fun because then you've got this one guy or maybe two guys who are just running around this little town, uh, you know, trying to figure out, you know, do we get out of the town <laughs> yeah. somehow, or do we just slash our swords at people? Nope. Uh, you know, hope we prevail. Or, yeah, it's a bad situation for Another them. striking moment is in one of these cases where they've got one of them trapped. They're figuring out, you know, what to do or whether to kill them or not. And, you know, I mean, there might be an opportunity for mercy or something. And then this old woman. So there's the old guy. There's an old woman who's probably, you know, 80 or something and can barely walk. And she's coming along. I think she's holding a pitchfork. <laughs> and so she's kind of deciding, I'm going to take care of this. And then the old, the wise old guy, right, who, again, you might think might counsel mercy or something he's like nah let's do this thing <laughs> so as soon as they do that then the everyone in the village has permission to just rip apart the bandits <laughs> you know so unfortunately as we go along kind of one by one you know they are killing a lot of people but we are seeing samurai die over time here although there's another moment i love this my favorite character so heaton likes manzo I like the badass. So there's this, you know, badass swordsman who's very quiet and confident. And it just, just, you know, you just want to be this guy. And the one problem they have is they realize that the bandits have three muskets, you know. And so every musket is a big deal because they can take them off, pick them off from a distance. And there's nothing a samurai can do if someone's shooting at them. And so they're like, we've got to get one of those muskets for ourselves. And it's nighttime. And this badass samurai is like, I'll take care of it. And he just runs off, right? And this, especially in a modern film, it takes so much uh, discipline for the director and writer of this to what would could be the coolest scene in the entire film they don't show us, right? He just says, I'll get one. He runs off. And a little while later, he comes back with a musket and says, you know, I'm two or three of them are, are now out. And whatever he did, we have no idea what he did, right? But it must have been incredible, <laughs> and we don't get to see it. <laughs> is, is that that's the guy who early on is, is, kills the dude, the sword fight? Yeah, you're, you're about that character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know. I I like him. He's very very stoic. He uh, the the early on the other guy, uh, they're fighting with wooden sticks, mm -hmm. and uh, he beats him. And then the other guy's like, "Well, what about real steel?" And he's like, "Don't! I will kill you. Don't do this. I will! I will cut you in half." And he's like, "How dare you insult me?" And he's like, "I'm gonna kill you." And then he kills him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was but, he, but he does it in a very. He's not even bragging. He's just like, "Yep, bronze taller than guy." Like, why would you? Why would you dispute that? And if guy were like, "How dare you say Ron is taller than me?" Like, it's yeah. it's just he's, he's it's it's this very matter of fact kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
And it's uh, it's interesting when the samurai uh, are discussing the crew that they've assembled, or you know, a couple of them are discussing the virtues of the various uh, recruits, uh, and they describe this guy as the guy who just wants to keep honing his yeah. swordsmanship. That's what's interesting him in helping the farmers is his own self improvement. Yeah, and this is this has to be a case where the actor did a lot of preparation, right? Because he is so good with the sword and so, you know, just has such stature in the way he moves. And I also kind of wondered if maybe he was a dancer or something. I mean, he just, you know, yeah, it's just amazing. Uh, so, you know, we get uh, a whole lot of battle stuff and and slowly the samurai are cut down, but they're cutting down more bandits. And eventually, you know, they do manage to take out the bandits. But uh, for the seven samurai are dead and it's very compelling because each dead person is put into a big pile of dirt and then their samurai sword is on top of that so that's kind of one of the key images of the film and the Mm -hmm. three who survive are our leader and his best friend and the young guy so you know i think that's important because it means there might be some possibility in the future that he's learned from from all this and you know eventually maybe he'll become the the wise samurai (laughs) And there's a weird yeah. thing because they're like, as they're walking away from the village and, you know, the villages are all celebrating and villages are all celebrating. As we mentioned, the the woman who had the fling with the young samurai now rejects him and now goes out to harvest barley and she's not interested in actually being with him. And as they're leaving, they're kind of like, you know, the villagers always win. <laughs> it's just this weird uh, tension that just never ends between between them. Yeah, I think the last line is, the victory belongs to those peasants, not to us. She doesn't, I mean, effectively she rejects him, but it's not like she mm. gets in his face and tells him off. She just gives him yeah. a cold shoulder. She just walks walks right on by him to, to join the other women harvesting and or planting. Now, I'm going to so argue forth. that's more cruel um, than you know, giving him a Dear John letter or yelling at him or something, because it's just like, nope, none of this meant anything. Yeah. I'm just going to go do this, you know, because I was to say, I think he would have stayed and and become a villager, or maybe protected them or something mm-hmm. if she hadn't blown him off. Yeah, well, that was entirely what I was expecting, and then uh, <laughs> I was wrong. It's not how it panned out. So, yeah, uh, talking about some of the production of the film, you know, this was, as is the case with people like uh, Scorsese or... Kubrick, et cetera, you know, Kurosawa is extremely demanding and detail-oriented. So he put some bizarre constraints on this thing. He insisted that they film it in order, which nobody ever does and doesn't make any sense. So they would literally have to wait. (laughs) It took over a year because they'd have to wait for the season to change for them to shoot the next scene. Why did he do like I've I've worked on several film sets. I've put things together. Why on earth would you do that? Like yeah. it, the only the the benefit that I could see is it would be useful to actors in that they would be able to develop the character and they wouldn't have to be doing things out of order, but it would be a nightmare in terms of the production schedule. Yeah. Not only that, he had them build this village in a remote location and and remote locations are murder for film crews, right? Because that means you got to stay somewhere and then you got to spend an hour or two driving in the morning to get to the location and all that, right? But no, he insisted they do this in a in a realistic location. Uh, they had all sorts of weather problems, so there were just long periods of time where they couldn't film because it was raining or or whatever. 
so the film ended up being the most expensive Japanese film ever up to that point. And so the cost was so high that the production company shut down production twice because they couldn't afford it. That's what Kurosawa would do to kind of blackmail them. I, I don't totally understand this, but he would say, I'm going fishing. And he would go fishing. And he said he wouldn't come back until they were ready to continue production. So uh, I interpret that as he was like, I'm not going to cut a shorter version of this film. I'm not going to work with you. Like, I'm just going to disappear until you agree to let me finish this thing. <laughs> All of this just made it very difficult for everybody. And and we can say it's insane to do it in order. It's insane to do it the way he did. But then he, and I, you know, I'm just going to put it out there for myself. He makes, you know, just this perfect film. I mean, a film that's had a huge influence on culture and, you know, was extremely successful, et cetera. So I guess, you know, who are we uh, peons or villagers or whatever to question Kurosawa's instincts in this case? Well... Yeah, I was. I watched a few YouTube videos on it, and they're all saying, "Oh, this is the best movie ever made." You know, out of my list of a hundred favorite movies, this is the top one. Yeah, and uh, so uh, I mean, the results, I guess, uh, in the end, justifies the means in this all case. All right, so shoot the stuff in order. That's what I've learned. <laughs> yeah. You you know what though like I I recently did a um, I shot a pilot up in uh, New York, New Jersey, and we were doing a, a comedy sketch of a World War II scene where there's a lot of shooting and stuff. And because of because of the nature of it, we were having to go back and forth on stuff. And it was really just jarring. Like it like the the mm-hmm. uh if, if we'd practiced it a lot, it would have been fine. But but under the the time frame, doing it out of order was difficult in terms of uh making the stuff coherent. Uh because normally when you're doing a live theater performance, uh and I'm I'm remembering my lines and Ron says his line, and I'm like, Oh yeah, Ron said why are you wearing that goofy hat? And I say, because you slapped my father or something like that. But if you're, if you're doing it out of order now and I don't have that cue from Ron, it's, it's a lot harder to get into the thing. Or, I don't know, maybe for better actors it's easier. Oh, sure. But for me, I found it difficult. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can, I can imagine it would be. Or uh, I've heard, you know, like uh, with some video games or maybe even cartoons, they'll, uh, they'll do the voice recording shot of sequence, you know, it'll just be mm-hmm. each actor will be on the phone from whatever town they're in, uh, recording their lines. Uh, so they have no context aside from knowing what's happening in the script. So yeah, I, I would guess that would be difficult, but I haven't really, uh, tried too much in the way of acting. So I can't, can't comment too much, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, so, the the podcast is called Worth Watching. I've already said what I think. Uh, is either you're going to dare to defy conventional wisdom and, and say this is not worth watching. <laughs> and, I, uh, I definitely thought it was worth watching. I wouldn't say it's, uh, I wouldn't count it as the best movie of all time, porgies. but uh, I would definitely. Porgies. What's that? I'm sorry. I was just making, I was oh, making oh, a joke of like a really lowbrow <laughs> film. <laughs> <laughs> Porky's could very well be. I haven't probably seen that since the eighties, so uh, I might have to give that another shot just to see how it's how it's aged. Probably like a fine yeah, wine. No doubt. I'm sure. I'm sure all the jokes um, hold up. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely good. I I did like it. You know, uh, me being who I am, I 
did entertain the notion that uh, maybe I could have shaved a half hour or so <laughs> off the running time, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's still good. I, I definitely would recommend it. I think it's uh, certainly uh, merits uh, the praise that it's garnered over the years. Um, I enjoyed it. I would watch it again. I'd take a breather. I don't need to watch it like next month or something, but sometime down the road, I, I'd watch I it again. I think it's worth watching, but it's contextual. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is, man, you've like you've had a crazy day. You're rare to go. You still are, you know, burning off those cold brews you had. Let's sit down and watch a three and a half Kurosawa film. It's just not going to fit. It's not going to fit. <laughs> Don't do this on a Thursday night when you're hard charging. When to watch this film, and it's a good film, but when to watch this film is a. You're kind of tired on a Saturday, and you just want to lay down and watch something and really soak into it. Really like luxuriate in a film that's when you do it alternately maybe you're hungover pretty good film to watch hungover (laughs) finally you're on a plane you're going to be on the plane for four hours this is a great thing to watch you're already going to be there why not immerse yourself in it yeah and i would say don't start drinking until you start the film or maybe an hour into the film (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) So, yeah, and and, uh, where I'm at, I mean, like I said, I kind of consider it a perfect film, but I I think that it's a film that gets better the more you watch it, which is challenging because of how long it is. So it's, you know, uh, but I I feel like when I originally watched it, I just, okay, there's some samurai and there's a fight and et cetera. And it's on the rewatches that the personalities of the individual samurai and of the villagers, and especially that complexity between the villagers and the samurai became much more apparent and impressive. Like, I I just don't think I understood at all the first couple times I watched it that the villagers, you know, had killed samurai in the past and, and the, you know, the conflict related to that and kind of the hypocrisy of that, of them now wanting mm-hmm. samurai to to protect them. For being as long as it is, most of this is subtext. Like the film doesn't usually tell you these things. I mean, you just have to kind of absorb it from little comments and, you know, what's going on. Um, so, you know, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. There is uh, another thing that's uh, maybe a little off topic, but I wanted to get it in sometime before we wrap up. Remember when we saw Rashomon, I was impressed with hmm. the rain in that. And when the rain comes in this, it comes uh, right right near the end, um, and it's it's equally impressive. I don't know what it is with Kurosawa, yeah, but he really knows how to make a good what, rainstorm. What I really enjoy about this film is that it is um, it's a juxtaposition of two things you don't tend to see. Um, the the acting is uh, at times a little over the top, um, or like like particularly with a drunk character, he, he's he's very much like a uh, almost like he's playing for a child audience, like the, the kind of the kind of acting that you you typically oh, yeah. have in a kids movie, where it's just it's very very animated over the top. Um, the peasants are that way, where they're very over the top. There's also a lot of like um, kind of weird physical acting that you don't normally see in films, where like they'll be thinking and they'll like scratch their chests. There's like a lot of hand movement and things. Mm-hmm. So it, the the um, the physical animation is probably more intense than than average films today. But at the same time, the narrative structure is one that just assumes you are smart and following along. And I always like films that do that. I like films where, um, uh, you know, the the guy goes, 
I don't have a wife. And he runs out and you don't immediately have a guy go, hey, his wife got captured by some other bandits and he's really <laughs> torn up about that. And, and it's right. he, he just, you're, you're left to three plus four is seven. You're like, they assume you can figure that out. And so it is this interesting thing of like a slight hint of older theater acting paired with a, a much smarter presumption of the audience's capabilities than a lot of other films I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's true. It definitely, uh, uh, it, it doesn't serve you everything on a silver platter. You got to pay attention. Yeah. So, uh, you know, some of the films, so this more than any of the others, even though Kurosawa inspired a huge number of films. So it immediately inspired Magnificent Seven, which was literally made a couple of years later. And we're going to, Guy and I will be watching that next for this, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a Roger Corman science fiction film based on it. I haven't seen that. So I'm looking forward to it. Cause you know, Roger Corman is the, that sort of, you know, mm-hmm. trashy film uh, uh, thing that can be fun. Let let me know how The Magnificent Seven oh. goes, because I've not seen that, and I don't think that this would translate. to the, It's it's an interesting proposition to try to convert this from samurai to the American West, but I don't know that it would work, because the the samurai, there is this, like, really deep class structure that, that permeates this entire thing, whereas the Old West ha- really has none of that. Like there's, there's not lords, well, yeah. there's not knights yeah. in the old West. There's the bordello owner. But like, if you just get a bunch of money and open up a bordello, you too can be a high status <laughs> bordello owner. Uh, so there, there's, it, it would be interesting, but I don't think that it would work as well. Well, what, what happened there is the version of uh, Seven Samurai that was released in the U.S. was significantly edited down. Um, you know, they just weren't going to put a three and a half hour Japanese film <laughs> in the theaters. Right. Right. And so... They based Magnificent Seven on the cut-down version. And you're right, it has none of that. It really is just, and what I would say a lot of these will probably be, it really is just get the gang together and beat the bad guys and protect the innocents, right? There, there is, yeah. uh, there's none of that class thing, really. I actually, all, alternately, in, they're all the drunks. Like that, right. the, the drunk <laughs> over-the-top character, all seven of them are that guy. <laughs> One we don't have on the list, and I'm thinking maybe we should add it just to consider is High Noon, because High Noon... It's not get the gang together. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, the one guy um, is, you know, protecting the town. But it does have that tension where he's disgusted with the people in the town and yet he's protecting them. And a classic moment at the end is he throws his badge into the dirt um, after he's saved them because he just, you know, he's so disgusted with them. So, you know, I feel like that might be interesting to see, uh, I don't, you know, the connection between that and, and this. Um we have, uh, you know, Three Amigos, <laughs> which uh, it's, I know, a favorite of guys, and oh, it's a fun film. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. You oh, know yeah. what? I do prefer the Three Amigos. <laughs> <laughs> and it is kind of the same plot. So, Chevy Chase over Kurosawa. Okay, that's a take. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's A Bug's Life, you know, so that's uh, actually a pretty direct uh, with uh, – you know, one of the challenges Guy and I have watching older films is Kevin Spacey is a, is part of Bug's Life. We already did uh, Usual Suspects. <laughs> so we're, we're always doing these films where, like, half the people in the film have been canceled. <laughs> since, right. Since. So, yeah, I think we're going to have some fun watching those and, and in the context of this and seeing what we think. And, uh, yeah, see if Three Amigos is, is better than Kurosawa. <laughs> so. I, I, I got I got one final question for you. If if this had been shot in color, do you think it would be better or worse? 
Hmm. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, of course, the film aficionado thing would be, of course, it has to be black and white. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I again, I'm stuck on. I just, I think it's a perfect film, and I, I think he understood so well the cinematography. Uh, we saw this in Rashomon also, where you know the the way the forest is, and they're running, and there's light coming through the trees, and and all this. So. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't think of what would be better. Let me put it that way. Maybe you have some mm-hmm. some thoughts on it. But I think that you need the starkness to mm-hmm. bring people into a plot that long. I think that if you had a three and a half hour film where there was also color, it would just be a little too much, and it would tip the scale to where people would quit watching. So I, I think it actually it, it benefits from black and white. It could be. Yeah, I, I, at the very least, I don't think color would add a great deal. You know, if it was done well, maybe it could add something, but, uh, you know, it's probably not really worth the effort <laughs> of trying to colorize the movie. Well, or it's interesting because like The Great Escape, you know, which is a classic movie and, and really beloved, was done at a time where you could choose to do either color or black and white. And it was mm-hmm. done in color. And one of the, at the time, one of the critics, you know, complaints about it was that the color was distracting, that it should have been black and white because the color, like, you know, your eye didn't know where to go or whatever. Now, a modern viewer watching that film huh. isn't even going to consider that, right? But no. I, it, it's interesting for someone at the time to to find color to be distracting. I, I, I get that, though, because, like, you could, you could extrapolate that out where uh, today we can make 3D films – and they're usually a bit gimmicky. I enjoy it, but they're they are a tad gimmicky. And I I could see somebody going, hmm. um, the 3D element to this doesn't add anything to it. It just is a distraction. Uh, and then I, I and then like imagine 3D films catch on and everything's right. 3D. And like 40 years from now, people are like, well, that's silly. Right. Um, an, another example of that pick and choose thing is some like it hot with uh, Jack Lemon. Um, some like it hot could have been done in uh, in color, but they thought that. Jack Lemon wearing lipstick would be too garish for audiences, <laughs> and so they did it in black and white. Right, <laughs> and of course, this whole same conversation happened with silent to sound. Mm-hmm. Right, like why would you have sound? It just distracts from you know the the story or the beauty of it or or whatever. Right, so yeah, I, I think it <laughs> it always just depends. But no, I can't. Uh, I'm happy with it in black and white, uh, and and I think that what. There was someone very close to me a long time ago who was visiting and we put in a DVD of a film and he was like, this is in black and white. I can't watch it. And we actually had to go to the video store. This is back when, you know, you had to go to the video store and get a color comedy of some Steve Martin thing so that he could watch it. Here he goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, so next up will be Guy and I seeing how the Magnificent Seven holds up. Spoiler, it's in color. <laughs> I saw it years ago, and I enjoyed it at the time, but uh, whether it'll hold up or not, uh, we'll, we'll And now I'm going to have to check and make sure it's in color. I'm not sure it was. <laughs> Pretty sure it yeah, was. Yeah, I think so. So, uh, so uh, I even watched it not that long ago. That's probably not in color. Oh, um, also, too, yeah, it is in color. So, okay, there we go. We're going to do that. Um, but to answer your question about it translating, Eden, one of the things that nobody knows these days is 
Magnificent Seven was so successful, they did like four sequels. <laughs> now, really? mysteriously, none of those sequels oh. is ever talked about or mentioned again. But I, I think some of the <laughs> actors got a real payday out of that one, you know. Um. <laughs> a lot of people remember the theme to Magnificent Seven still. Of course, it was used in Marlboro ads too, so that yeah. helped. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, I mean, well, again, we will see when we watch these. I think the major thing lost in all the the remakes of it is that they lose all that tension with the villagers. And I think that's unfortunate because it's mm. way more interesting when you find out these aren't just innocent people who have, you know, have clean hands and all that. And then yeah. as Mifune said in this, like, but I mean, I think what the film is trying to say is like, you couldn't survive in this time and have clean hands. I mean, there just wasn't a way to do it. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, there's nothing else. I think we got what we need there. <laughs> we managed to do a, a podcast. Usually we're about the length of the film or longer. And this time we're about the third of the length of the film. So that's probably good. Oh, yeah. Theoretically, uh, if you, I watch, figured we'd go about four five hours. Hour film, <laughs> you want to be able to cover it in half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe there's some threshold beyond which we just shorten it and shorten well, it. Well, thanks, Eden, for doing this. I know, you know, it's a big time sink uh, for this one, and uh, I appreciate your doing this. Uh, hey, it was it was fun to do. I appreciate you guys uh, uh, rolling with the punches on it. I, I, I Just so you know, I dropped I, – I, I screwed up with you. I also simultaneously – scheduled uh, an interview with a guy named Lewis Bollard and Hiram Lewis at the exact same time in my calendar because of the name Lewis. And so one of, one oh, of the guys geez. was like, hey, did we drop this? And I'm like, no, Lewis. And I, I, I wasn't mean, but I was like, moron. And then, and then like looked at it and was like, oh God, no, I, I screwed up. So anyway, I, I dropped things all over this week and appreciate you guys being nice to me. And uh, yeah, Rod, I, I, I emailed you and uh, your, your email didn't come back to me. And I, for hours, I was like, "Did I? I Rod must truly be enraged." Uh, so I sent, I sent an email the following day, and you were like, "Yeah, it's fine, man. <laughs> it's okay." So it was, it was quite the relief. So th- thank you guys sure. for being flexible. Now, uh, so where I will put a bit of pressure oh, yeah. on you That's is we were going to do uh, Escape from New York at some point. So we got to get mm-hmm. that scheduled if you still want to do it. We will. Uh, however, I. Uh, I've already kind of got the glut for alienating the audience this season, and I think yeah, I know you had done is, like I fifteen think, or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think alienating the audience is going to be a thing where I, I get it out of my system and go ah to hell with it, and then I wait like about a year uh, and go ah, I want to talk about sci-fi some more. So that one that one might be a hot minute, but we will do it. Sounds well, have good. fun, and you know I am excited for us to kind of. Com- compare these we did it with Rashomon you know we watched several uh, films and, and contrasted and it's one of the things I like about what we're doing because there are lots of podcasts that do all the films of a director or something like that you know but we're doing these topics like this and and you know I just think nobody else does that and I and I'm really interested to see kind of mm-hmm. how this goes um, well it's always a always a pleasure to have you join us it was uh, it was real nice thank you very much
So uh, the relevant bike anecdote I was going to say is um, one of Kurosawa's early great films is called Stray Dog. It's actually one of the first sort of detective stories on film. And um, it's about a cop, you know, in Japan right after the war who loses his gun. And, of course, there aren't many guns. And for him to lose his gun is a huge embarrassment. And he's going to be responsible for anything that happens to it. So the movie is him trying to track down his gun. Uh, But they start out because it's called Stray Dog. They start out with this extended shot during the credits of this panting dog. And there was this Western woman who decided that Kurosawa must have given a dog rabies so that he could get this shot of the panting dog. And she sued him in court (laughs) for giving a dog rabies. (laughs) He had to explain in court (laughs) that what they did was they had one of the, you know, interns or whatever on the set. Uh, they tied the leash to a bike and the intern rode around with a bike and, and wore the dog out so that they could then shoot it panting. And I'm like, what? I don't know, which is more convincing that you give it rabies, wait for the rabies to develop, you know, <laughs> shoot it or run it around with a bike. <laughs> also, how, how do you get the rabies? It's not like you can walk into a pharmacy and go, hello, I need three vials of rabies, please. Like you have to track down a what? There's literally no way to get rabies other than a wild animal or access to some kind of bio lab. Hmm. Yeah, it was kind of a, it was sort of a weird xenophobia, you know. Oh, this Japanese director must have must have done this. Um, okay, let's see. Well, directors have access to all that stuff, you know, the rabies <laughs> yeah. runners, and yeah, you, know, you just hire one. <laughs> 